Father in heaven, how thankful we are that we serve a risen Savior. That our Savior Jesus Christ conquered death. We thank you that because he lives, we shall live also. And we would ask that in our time together this morning that you will draw near to us by your Spirit and by the Word. And that you would come and do us good in our time together. As we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let me read in your hearing starting at verse 5 and going down through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow for those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. May God bless the reading of His Word. Again, take your Trinity hymn books before we come to open the Word and turn to 198. 198. Jesus Christ is risen today. 198. Let's stand again as we sing.
Good morning. It's a good day this morning, isn't it? It's wonderful that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a people who, not just today, but every Lord's Day, with that continual pattern until He comes again, live in the light of the empty tomb, don't we? We have that pattern built into our worship. And it, I wasn't even planning on saying this, but that just astounds me. Every single Sunday, every single Lord's Day, it is the Lord's Day because it's the day on which Jesus Christ conquered the grave bodily. And he rose from the dead as the first fruits of all those whom he would bring with him. That's a, that's a wonderful truth to exult in this morning, isn't it? Let's uh, draw our minds for a second. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So if you want to turn there, you can do so now. But I was thinking about this this week as I was reading some of the resurrection appearance accounts. And I couldn't help but think what it would have been like to be Mary Magdalene on that day. She comes to the tomb with some of her friends, and evidently they, you know, there's this appearance of the angels, there's the seeing of the empty tomb, and evidently they all get split up somehow. Some of them go to tell the other disciples. Mary Magdalene seems to come back at some point before anyone has seen the risen Lord, if you know how all those accounts fit together. But the one in John explains Mary Magdalene coming to the, coming to the tomb seemingly after everyone else has left. And she sees the empty tomb and then she turns around and she sees one that she thinks to be the gardener at first. And she is coming there because she just wants to anoint and take care of the body of the Messiah that she had believed in, the one whom she had so loved. I mean, Jesus had forgiven her many sins. Uh, Luke chapter 8 says that he had cast seven demons out of her. She is someone who had been forgiven much, and therefore she loved the Lord Jesus much. And she turns around and she sees someone standing there and she thinks that he's the gardener. And as she's talking with him, he says, he just says her name. He says, Mary. And she exclaims, Rabbi. Because in, in that instant, she knows. In that instant, she knows that the one that she saw crucified, the one that had so loved her and had forgiven her so many sins, the one who was her Redeemer, she now saw standing there, risen and glorified. And I couldn't help but wonder what was going through her mind in that moment. Can you imagine all of the light and the truth that would have all of a sudden exploded into your brain if you were her in that moment? It's, it's hardly imaginable to me. Maybe all these texts from the Old Testament that she had learned as a little girl came flooding into her mind. Maybe the Old Testament scriptures and how they prophesied you know, he was crucified, according, or he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, Paul is talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. Maybe some of those scriptures started to make sense to her. 
Maybe she started to truly realize what Jesus had said to his disciples over and over again. That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and on the third day rise again. That, that message that he repeated to them over and over, but seemingly none of them could actually get their arms around or their minds. I think that it's probably true that all of the significance of what he had just done on that cross and what he had done in his resurrection and his exaltation began to flood into her mind. Maybe she gained a greater grasp of how he had accomplished the redemption that he promised he would. And that's exactly what the resurrection is. There is all sorts of theological significance, all sorts of gospel significance to the resurrection that we often don't think about. And not just his resurrection, but his entire exaltation. And that's what Philippians chapter 2 is about. Philippians chapter 2, as Pastor Calvin just read, is one of the most ancient Christian hymns that we have. Most scholars believe that this was actually a hymn that was already being sung in the church, even during the Apostle Paul's day. And this hymn, as you can see in verses 5 through 8 and 9 through 11, has sort of two pillars to it. Verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. So he's urging them to a kind of life based on what Christ has done. Verse 6, Who though he was in the form of God, so equal with God, co-eternal in majesty and authority with the Father, sharing his glory, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the first pillar. It's his coming from heaven. It's his humiliation. Stepping down from eternal majesty and glory with his Father and being born in the likeness of men. And not even just the likeness of men, but taking on the form of a servant. Being found in human form, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Becoming so radically obedient to the will of his Father that he would subject himself to the most ignominious, painful suffering that anyone could ever imagine. Not just suffering the wrath of the Roman government or of the condemnation of the Jews, but suffering the wrath of his very father, whom he was enthroned with before this. So that's the first pillar of this hymn. It's his humiliation. But the second pillar is connected to the first pillar through one word. Verse 9. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So based on everything that he had just done, based on everything that Paul just said about Christ's obedience and his humbling and his humiliation and his death, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see how these two things are connected in this passage. His exaltation, according to the thinking of the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
is built on and based on his obedience in his humiliation as a servant. One is the cause, the other is the effect. One is the work, the other is the reward. His exaltation is the reward for his humiliation and his obedience. But I want us to see just a glimpse of some of the significance of this word, therefore, and how uh, his exaltation and his humiliation are connected. Because, there, like I said before, there is all sorts of gospel significance here. So first, look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This signals a declaration of redemption. It was a declaration that his humiliation had truly accomplished what God had intended for it to intended for it to accomplish. It was a declaration that Christ had truly won the prize that he came to get in his humiliation. Uh, this this also signals through that Christ's vindication. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Because we see this over and over again in the preaching of the books, in the book of Acts. We see this this paradigm in the preaching of the book of Acts that I want us to see together. Because it's going to cease, because we're going to see something through it that says something about the declaration about Christ in his exaltation. Acts 22, 23-24. Or actually, we can go 22-24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So someone that you all saw do these miracles. Someone that you all knew was spotless and blameless in his life. You could bring no just charge against him. He was attested to you by God. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So in accordance with the eternal will of his Father, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence, Acts chapter three verses thirteen verses thirteen through fifteen has a similar dynamic in it. Verses Acts chapter three verses thirteen through fifteen. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the what? The holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, 
So when Jesus walked out of the tomb, what Peter is saying is that when he walked out of the tomb and when he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns this very moment, it was a declaration that he was truly the spotless and innocent one. It was an undoing of the condemnation unleashed by the scribes and the Pharisees. It was an undoing of their wickedness. It was God's declaration about him that this is the righteous one whom you condemned. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him from the dead. God undid what you unjustly did. So that's the first element that I want us to see is that it's Christ's vindication. He is declared right, declared to be the spotless and holy one, the righteous one, because death could have no hold on him. Related, related to that one, related to that, is Christ's satisfaction. Not only was it a declaration that this was the spotless and righteous one, but it's also a declaration that his mission had been accomplished. The redemption that he sought to want to win for his people. The plan of redemption wrought in eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by which the Father gave the Son a people. The Son says, I will go. I will humble myself. I will purchase them. The resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father is a declaration that God is satisfied with what Jesus did for us. And we see this by noting the Isaiah 53 background of this text. Look at a look at verse. Excuse me. Let me find it. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul is a Jew. Paul has a richly Old Testament background. And the servant songs, the the messianic prophecies of the servant songs, were a key part of the messianic hope in Paul's day. So when Paul calls Jesus the servant who became obedient to the point of death and suffered all of this humiliation. Alarm bells should be going off in our heads. Our minds should be drawn to Isaiah's servant songs. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I want us to see some of the connections. Because not only is there a connection between Jesus becoming the servant for our salvation. There's also a connection even within Isaiah 53 about his exaltation based on his work as the servant. Turn, turn, uh, so Isaiah 53. Actually, the end of verse, the end of chapter 52 and then the end of chapter 53 This servant song of Isaiah 53 is bookended. It's bookended with the the servant's exaltation, his humiliation, and then his exaltation again at the end. So 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they will understand. So you see where the servant song starts? My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. What does that sound like? That sounds like Philippians chapter 2. The exalted, obedient servant of the Lord. So Paul is drawing from this text to make known the gospel of Christ's exaltation to God's people. Then look at the end of chapter 53. Well, we won't read the whole song. I trust that you're familiar with it. Starting in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so based on that offering for guilt that the servant would make, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Listen, dead people don't see their offspring. Dead people don't prolong their days. His soul makes an offering for guilt, and then he sees his offspring and prolongs his days. And not only that, but this speaks of the rule and the reign of Christ. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see, in other words, see what he bought and be satisfied with it. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Note that as well. He will make many to be accounted righteous based on what he has done and what he has done alone. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, look at that, that word again. So this is, the, this is the same word that Paul uses. Paul uses the therefore in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name after he talks about the obedience of Jesus. Isaiah in the servant song says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So even the suffering servant song is bookended on both sides of it with the exaltation of this servant. It's bookended with what this servant wins by what he did. So that, and that's really what I want to press in on us this morning. I want to press in on us the complete and total victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that he bought, he has won. He has purchased our souls and he will irrevocably and unchangeably save us. He'll receive his inheritance. But this isn't just this isn't just about the vindication of Christ or about God's being satisfied with his work. This also sort of pivots and turns its attention on us because we receive great gospel benefits from this exaltation. The resurrection and ascension of Christ is good news for us because it is a declaration of our justification. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 22 through 25. Romans chapter 4, 22 through 25, the great section on, in the midst of Paul's great discourse on justification by faith. 
he speaks of the resurrection of Christ in a really, really interesting way. It says, that is why his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Speaking of Abraham. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And listen to this part. This is the main part. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. For a long time that didn't make sense to me because I I would read the suffering servant song and think, okay, he suffered for my justification. And he rose to conquer death for me. And that's true. That's absolutely true core of the gospel. But if but Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins and of all people most to be pitied. Why is that? Because if Christ is not vindicated, that means that his work for us means nothing. If Christ is not vindicated as the righteous one, then we cannot be declared righteous in him. So that's why Paul connects his resurrection to the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Because when God raised him from the dead and declared him righteous, that was also the declaration of the imputed righteousness of Christ to everyone who would ever believe in him. When God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased in action at the resurrection, it was also him saying about you, you are my son or you are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. That's the gospel of the resurrection for us. It's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ because Jesus is a perfect savior and God has proved that by raising him from the dead and exalting to him, him to his right hand. You can know for certain that you are right with God. You can know for certain that all your sins are forgiven. You can know for certain that there's nothing more for you to do because Jesus has paid it all. And his righteousness stands in your place. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. It means no more condemnation. It means no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is pivotal to our salvation. Next, we see that it is a declaration of his dominance. Second part of verse 9 through verse 10. He has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is Christ's exaltation to the place of universal power and authority. Name above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is not like the authority of any earthly king. Authority whose kingdoms have boundaries. Whose kingdoms are restricted by international laws whose power is offset by the powers of other kingdoms. This is power and authority that has no boundaries. This is authority not only over every man, but over the entire cosmos. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did so as the head of a new creation. 
the redeemer of all of creation. In fact, all of creation is going to be transformed one day to shine in the likeness of his resurrection. But this also means that he has authority over all of it. And the Old Testament is full of this prophetic promise of the Messiah's reign. From the very beginning in God's dealing with the patriarchs, you see this. Uh, We won't turn there, but I'm just going to give you sort of a scattershot of some of these passages. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. To Judah shall be the obedience of the peoples. All peoples, not just his brothers. All nations will obey the descendant of Judah. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation uh, Revelation chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. God will establish the throne of David's son forever. This couldn't have possibly just been relegated to Solomon because Solomon's kingdom ended. It was looking forward to speak of the reign of David's true and better son. Psalm 2, the nations are his heritage and the ends of the earth are his possession and he will smash them with a rod of iron. Psalm 72, he will have dominion from, from the end to the ends of the earth. Desert tribes will down, bow, bow down before him and his enemies will lick the dust. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in the night visions, one like a son of man coming up to the ancient of days and, is, and to him is presented and he's given authority and he's given a kingdom. These prophecies of the Messiah's victory and authority over the nations are all part of the context of what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Sometimes I I feel like we, reading our New Testaments, we miss how Jewish the apostles are. We We miss how steeped in the Old Testament promises of the gospel the apostles are. All of these things have connections. There are, it's like, sort of like a spider web, connecting all sorts of dots back to Old Testament promises. So when Paul talks about the exaltation of Christ, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowing on him name that is above every name, you should think, Lion of the tribe of Judah, King from the line of David, promised Messiah who will rule and reign over all things and make all things new for God's people who will reign over a better kingdom than David did, who will reign over a more permanent and a further-reaching kingdom than Solomon did, to one to whom not only will the nations belong, but the entire universe will belong to him. Those are the things we should be thinking about as we read about Christ's resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And I think that we would be remiss, and this this is my last point, I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't see that this is also a declaration of his deity. Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will never cease to amaze me that there are some who call themselves Christians who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Arians believe that Jesus is the first and highest of creatures, but they believe that he's a creature. Adoptionists believe that Jesus is just a man whom God adopted as his son. He was just a man who, according to this 
according to this line of thinking. He was just a man who God was pleased with, so he said, okay, I'll adopt you as my son. What Paul says here about the resurrection of Christ and what the resurrection and exaltation of Christ proves is that that could never be true. Because look at this confession that every uh, tongue will make. It says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when you look at the word Lord, Lord, it's the Greek word kurios. And if you know anything about the Greek Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew word for Yahweh, that name, that, that name of God that we were looking at a couple of weeks ago, or last week, that name for God that sets him apart as the only God, the self-sufficient, the self-existent one. When the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, instead of Yahweh, they put kurias there. And that's the same word that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 2 and says that every tongue will one day confess it. In other words, Paul is saying every or someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the only living God. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God over all nations and over all creation who has taken on our human nature and redeemed it for us and for our salvation. Every tongue will make that confession one day because they will stand face to face with the risen Lord. This also has Old Testament significance. And I guess that shouldn't surprise us by now. But it it actually, Paul is directly quoting Isaiah chapter 45. Remember last week when I was saying that Isaiah chapters 40 through 45, Yahweh was putting the false gods on trial. It's called the trial of the false gods. Well, I was preaching from Isaiah chapter 40 last week, but chapter 45, the end of that trial of the false gods, is what Paul actually quotes from here. Isaiah chapter 45, I'm just going to turn, you don't have to follow me here, but I'm just going to quote it really quick because I think it's important to sort of stamp this truth into our brains. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 23, verses 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. What does that sound like? It sounds like what Paul says at the name of Jesus. So Yahweh says in that context, hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance based on who I demonstrate myself to be in my saving action of my people. Paul says Jesus Christ fulfills that. He says that every every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue will confess at the name of Jesus that He is Lord, He is Yahweh, He is the God who said that about Himself. It's a declaration of his deity. That's what the resurrection is. And we should even look at some of the things that Jesus said about himself and see that too. In John chapter 5, he says that as the Father has life in himself, so he has given given to the Son also to have life in himself. 
Life in himself, self-existence, the one who has what he has and is what he is from himself alone and not in dependence on any other for it. That's what Paul, that's what Jesus says he is. And he proved it by taking his life back from the dead. This should be a sobering reality for us as we come to the end of the passage here. Because this is a universal recognition. This isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't just Paul saying that he wishes every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And he wishes every knee would bow. I actually think that the ESV kind of translates it wrong here. The ESV says, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. If you have the NASB, you'll notice that it says that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And I think that that is actually the correct translation here because it's a certainty. It's not hypothetical. It's certain. Every knee will bow. You want to know what the difference is? When Christ returns, his people will bow with gladness and joy inexpressible and filled with glory as their bodies are raised incorruptible just like his. And you know what those who have rejected Christ will do on that day? They'll bow as they tremble before the feet of the one that they've rejected. That should be both a wonderful reality to the believer believer, and a sobering reality to you if you're outside of Christ this morning. This text is a call to come to Christ and to bow the knee today because he is the risen Lord. He is the one who offers you salvation freely and by his grace. His resurrection proves that there's nothing you can do to add to his righteousness. He has done it all. The Father is pleased with his purchase. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The offer of the Gospel, the offer of Christ himself is free for you today. And you will recognize him. Either now and bow with joy, or then, and bow in terror, and have eternity in hell waiting. Praise God that's not our fate anymore because of the work of his Son. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would love your Son more. I pray that we would tremble in holy and glad awe at his feet. I pray that even though the realities that we read are so hard to wrap our minds around, that we would rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory that anticipates the glory that is ours because of what your Son has done. I pray that you would uh, help us today as we worship you and still in us a sense of awe and love for you based on the work of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing one final hymn today. And I think I lost the paper for it. Yep. Which one, which one is it? 216. 216. In uh, Trinity Hymnal. Sorry, I botched that part. Will you stand with me as we sing Crown Hymn with Many Crowns? Oh.